This is the podcast for September 23rd, 2011. It's not safe for work. Recorded live from just outside James Carville's lithium stash, it's the professional left with Drift Class and Blue Gal. needs to take some lithium, I think. He does. Well, he needs to reassess his life decisions, let's say. (laughs) (laughs) Starting in 1988, let's say. (laughs) Although I'm very glad he got Bill Clinton elected or helped him get elected and got that nice George Stephanopoulos fella a a job on morning TV. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's nice. He kind of – the only thing he seems capable of doing now is getting getting himself on television, which I guess is all you need to do. Well, you know, him and Mark Penn and uh, his Well, no, but he kind of lost it wife. this week. Like, we all need to panic. No, really, yeah. we all need to panic. Oh, now we have to turn and listen to this guy, you know, because we're at the dinner hey, party well, of centrists and pundits, and all of a sudden somebody stands up and spills their wine and says, wait. Mm-hmm. You know, it, There's something more. Yeah. It, and turns to the butler and says, it was you. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, but that's James Carville's job. Yeah, it's to, it is. you know the fascinating thing about this season is how many campaign hitmen, mm-hmm. you know, amoral campaign hitmen, are in the public eye all at once. Yep. Uh, Mark Penn, Ed Rollins, Carville, Mary Matlin, I think is still doing that god awful show with uh, Ariana Huffington called Both Sides Now. Yeah, uh, and but she's and, also been on, you know, yelling at. Everybody's yelling at Tucker Carlson for talking about Sarah Palin, which is so funny because, yeah. of course, you get. Let's talk about not talking about her then. That'll be wor- <laughs> that'll work. And my response to that was, "Oh my God, Tucker Carlson still alive?" So <laughs> because oh oh yeah, that's right. He he used to exist. He used, used to, to have, have a, a job, CNN a real show. job. Yeah. And then John Stewart went in and took a big steaming chunk out of his leg, and he bled to death and went away. But he's still around because to build a blog for himself. Yeah, which got had a launch party, to -hmm. which uh, Scooter Libby was invited and then ignored. I'm not making that up. No, I know. No one would talk to him at Tucker Carlson's launch party. I am not making that up. Have I mentioned Blue Gal that there's a club and we're not in it? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. there really, really is. Really, really is. This time of year is extra special because as things start to boil. As the right loses their mind over the fact that the black president is still hasn't gone away yet and the left loses – we lose our collective mind over the fact that Barack Obama has decided to insert the angry progressive chip into his skull yeah, like yeah. Data playing with the, his emotion chip. Hey, this will work. Um, which I kind of respect because, you know, it's a means to an end. Well, and I you know must- who you haven't heard from at all this week, which I think is telling – you haven't heard from David Pluff. No. And so we know where that chip came from. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> David Pluff has gone dark. Yeah. <laughs> he, well, yeah. You know, he's the one that put the chip in. Yeah. And now he's disappeared. <laughs> yeah, run silent, run he only, Pluff. You know? he, he, he only does the backups between 11 and 7, you know. <laughs> Every, all the regular workers don't see him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Every now and then you get an email from David Pluff going, uh, the president will be down from 7 yeah. 30 for maintenance. We've got a Drupal 7 upgrade coming. <laughs> which is, which is, you know, I mean, and, and that is, that is true on so many frightening levels. It is. Um, because Barack Obama is a delivery system. Yeah. For an entire suite of fantasies and 
dreams and cynical manipulations, and I think he tends way towards more one end of the, the cynical, you know, end of the spectrum than the, the the light end. But there is no doubt that the modern president really is a sort of a manifestation of our collective unconscious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you can sort of see what the American soul looks like when you start looking around and seeing who runs for president every four years. Well, yeah, and that's what I was going to say is our, our conversation earlier today about Michelle Bachman. Speaking of delivery yeah. systems, yeah, where yeah. she said, you know, these banks are being destroyed by regulation. Yeah. And you made the comment, well, you know, it is opposite day. It's Wednesday. <laughs> it is. And you have to understand that. <laughs> and that really does explain how she was able to have five kids. Yeah. They were all <laughs> conceived on Wednesday, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. That's right. On opposite day. Opposite where, day. Where, where Marcus Bachman watches gladiator movies for 20 minutes and then takes a running start at his wife, you know? <laughs> We're getting the job done over here. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. And they're doing oh, their duty man. to, you know, you know, that is marriage for a lot of human history, for a lot well, of yeah. people. Yeah, but, but, you know, she's – Duty. You talk about delivery system and Barack Obama being a delivery system. I mean, yeah. she even more so as far as <laughs> – Ed Rollins found he just couldn't put chips in fast enough, you know, to yeah. even even make it work. She really likes being delusional, so – well, I, I actually, I think Ed Rollins' motives are a lot more grossly mercenary. Like oh, yeah. His, well, she ran uh, out of money and he left. I mean, that really exactly. is it. That really is he, what happened. He got her as high as she was going to go. Yep. And cut out at the top. He sold at the top of the market. Yep. Yep. You know? Well, and, as soon as he, Perry came in and he saw that he got her on all five Sunday shows, you know, the full yeah. Ginsburg, and then, hey, everybody forgot about it less than 24 hours later. He flipped that property. Yeah, and so flipped that property. Yeah, and now I'm going to be a pundit again, you know, because I'm on everybody's Rolodex. So let me repeat: there really is a club. We really are not in it. And but the thing is, what the last couple of weeks have demonstrated is that if the president of the United States, whom I voted for and will vote for again, gets desperate enough, he will break glass in case of emergency and pull out that progressive yeah. agent. Yeah. He might not mean a fucking word of it. It might be a means to an end. It might be something that he just drops at, you know, once his second inaugural, which I'm sure David Pluff is writing right now. Yep. Um with with malice towards no banker and charity towards <laughs> all bankers, you know? Yeah. Um, but he knows that's where he needs to go. And this is really sort of a lesson in, in real politic for, for all progressives. There should be. This is how you do this. You know, there's no place he's cornered. There's no place exactly. for him to go to get reelected other than back to us. And at least partially, at least gently. And so, you know, I'm not going to fall in love with him again. I'm not going to swoon. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say, oh, cause you know, he was never my messiah. Right. He was never the one for me. You know, I had that already. I was 18 at the time and it was a hot summer and there was a lot of <laughs> Boone's Farm apple wine involved. And, and she saved I, your life. That's right. I oh. regret none of it. And, <laughs> but I regret none of it, nor the small bastard electoral children that were created by voting for John Anderson. <laughs> However, this is what it takes to propel a center right Pragmatist. Remember, always, always, Barack Obama is a fucking 
machine. He's a fucking pragmatic machine. He only does what he needs to do to get his agenda done. And I really do think, uh, other than being you know way too snuggle bear with the bankers, he really is still obsessed with this idea that that Washington should run the way it runs in his constitutional law class. Right. You know, Congress proposes, you know, he lays out as the president the broad goals. Congress debates this shit. He weighs in when he has to. And at the end, he he sort of husbands, pardon the sexist expression, but it's actually quite appropriate, husbands the the process along. Yeah, in the farming sense. Yeah, exactly. 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 And at the end of the process, the the pristine senatorial, you know, um, deliberative process, you have something. The cooling tank of the U.S. Senate resolves that, you know, this the thing that benefits the most people politically will win. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's but uh, neither side wants that process. No. And especially the the, the Republicans don't want that process because that doesn't give them nearly enough power. No, they're they're used to George Bush ruling, running the country like a you know banana republic dictator, and the left you know certain elements of my liberal brethren and sister have this fantasy um, that Barack Obama could simply shake his fist at Congress and they would do his will somehow. Well, but you and know I this s- is this is it's interesting you should talk about that. There's an article in the New York Times today about Jerry Brown in California <laughs> and how up. the wake up call that he's had because the Republicans that he's working with now are not the same type of Republican that he had the first time he was governor. Yeah. And yeah. they won't compromise on anything. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes the only thing he's going to be able to do, because it is a democratically, you know, Democratic Party state in terms of the legislature, but he can only do what he can do by himself as a Democrat. Mm-hmm. And anything that requires any compromise with the Republicans is off the table, and that's a big problem because anything to do with taxes yep. needs a two-third Telephone. majority. Who came up with that idea? Hmm. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it's it's a fascinating article, and I, I recommend it to everybody, that how things have changed on the Republican side if they have become mobsters. Yes, absolutely. So and, – and- what, and, and as you watch politicians on the left and in the center, mm-hmm. um, who still, in the case of people like Tom Friedman and David Brooks, need to be slapped repeatedly mm-hmm. to get the message. So they still, I, I, and I'm going to take a brief aside here. Um, there's there's this god awful thing in the New York Times called the conversation. Oh yeah, just where uh, Gail, what's her name, and David Brooks have this tortured, awful, stilted conversation you know once a week about what's going on in politics and gail collins my apologies yes. and and today she basically ran him right up to the edge of because david brooks in the last two days has written a, a, a sensationally bad column about how he was a sap barack obama used me he's not yeah. a reasonable man at all he's nancy pelosi in drag yeah. Yeah. and you know fuck you david brooks that's all i gotta say yeah. but yeah. she walked him right up to the edge and said okay david what do you do when the right is completely intractable and has tells you to your face, fuck you, we're not going to cooperate with anything? What do you, what does the reasonable man do then? And the answer is, David Brooks doesn't have an answer to that question. Right. The answer is, well, it's going to be a rough election. And, 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 answer, and David Gergen says, you know, we're going to have a hard time governing. What? Yes. yes. 
because, again, as I said last week or the week before, David Gergen, David Brooks, Tom Friedman, our centrist punditocracy would collectively rather eat a bullet than admit that the right is wrong and the left is right, which is where we come in. Because our job, glass? oh, go ahead. Our no. job as the the sort of Jiminy Cricket <laughs> of American politics is to sit there and remind them in our tiny little format in as many ways as we can. I mean, us collectively as liberals. That they were wrong. Yes, that's all very interesting, David Brooks, but you're wrong. Yes, Tom Friedman, but you're wrong. Yes, Barack Obama, but you're wrong. And we've been right all along. So maybe you should listen to us from, you know, for the next couple of years at least. I so. think, I do think that a lot of this is related to money. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. And that's what I want to get into next, but now. And the perception go. of what wealth is? Well, yeah, that's what we're going to talk about tonight is perceived mm-hmm. wealth, perceived class warfare, and how things are reported in the media, which we are now discovering is made up of millionaires. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You know, what a shock. Yeah. You're listening to the Professional Left Podcast, professionallab.blogspot.com. I'm just looking over a list of. Um uh, somebody sent me a link, or I found a link uh, mm-hmm. at a place I occasionally go, of from 1968 of science fiction writers who we the undersigned believe the United States must remain in Vietnam, and we the we oppose the participation of the United States in Vietnam. Yes, right, right. And there's two lists, and it's fascinating to me as a sort of amateur literary science fiction historian to see who's on which list. Yeah. Some you expect, some are like, really? Oh. Well, anyway, it was 68. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, quite my grandfather retired from Kent State in 68, mm-hmm. and he was the only professor in the math department there on record as being opposed to the Vietnam War. Yeah. Whereas the art department, where my dad and mom taught, <laughs> you yeah. know, was a little different. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, my and, and, mom was know, a. I should say my mom was a teaching assistant there. Anyway. And 68, I mean, I wasn't really aware of anything other than Batman and, mm-hmm. you know, where we were living at the time. But 68 is a good year for, you know, everyone to remember about how it started and how it ended. Yeah. Yeah. And the kind of watershed year that, that 68, 69 was. Yeah. It really just, you know, so much changed over the course of really 18 months. Mm-hmm. Um, that if you, uh, I remember reading someone saying, if you'd gone to sleep in 1966 mm-hmm. and woken up in 1969, you wouldn't recognize the country That's you woke right. up. That's right. And I, I think we're headed in that direction here. Well, yeah, and and you know, I was thinking about that today. That what you and I are battling and and talking about last week about you know how we survive the next five years, I was thinking about what are we battling? Are we battling the GOP? Are we battling conservatism and centrism? Are we battling something political? And it occurred to me that what we're really battling is nihilism. Yes. Yes. And whether that comes from wealthy people saying, fuck this country, I've got mine, I'm taking it, mm-hmm. or whether it's liberals saying, oh, everything sucks, man, right. you know, and and typing in a comment thread about you know, oh, man, I'm not going to get what I want, man, so screw everything. And both of which are two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. Uh, They're both saying the same thing, which is tomorrow is not worth fighting for. Yep. And, and we're fighting I, that. 
We really I, are fighting that. I do not believe that. I will never believe that. Well, never is a long way. I mean, there might be a, a day when I'm 90 and pissed off um, at you know President Malia Obama. <laughs> but um, you know, the, we all have our dark moments, and the black dog kneels at my door more often than most, probably. Yeah. Uh, being an Irishman and a writer, this happens to me. But the future is absolutely worth fighting for. It, you know, what else? Unless your your goal in life is to use everything up just at the moment you go to your grave, that's a yep. great. If you're thinking that that is a great life, then um, I don't I don't care. I, yep. I, you are my enemy. You know, because yep. you're fighting to use up my planet for your convenience and then fuck the rest of the the world. And anytime you talk about the future generations and my kids and grandkids, fuck you. You don't give a shit about your grandkids. Yep. If you want to boil this planet alive or leave a wasteland for them to, to scrap around in until they're 13 and they die. Or you want oh. to jack off to your own discontent uh, pretending that that makes you sound intelligent. Yeah, sorry. Not you interesting. Know, we don't have any time for that. So no. Well, yeah. So moving along, shall we talk about moving wealth? Moving along. Well, I, yeah. wanted, I have kind of some bullet points I wanted to bring up and then we can talk about them. Uh, if you pick – Pick and choose which you want. I'm giving you a salad bar of news items. Is this a lightning items. round? This we'll is the out. lightning round. Yeah. Uh, first one most people have heard about, Tea Party Republican Congressman John Fleming, who said, you know, by the yeah. time I feed my family, I have maybe $400,000. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> you said something this morning about with me about, you know, part of what he's saying is this is what I have left to reinvest in my business. I don't think that's exactly what he was saying. I think he really was whining about he's not really a millionaire. He only has less than half a million dollars at the end of the year. Right. But uh, that's bullshit. So right. Well, <laughs> number and, and two. Oh, go ahead. Just if we're doing a lightning round, I, I, I very, very strongly encourage any policy, tax policy, that, that, that encourages small businesses uh-huh. to reinvest in their people and their equipment and innovate and so forth. I think that's a wonderful thing. But this guy, there, there's, there, there are pages, and there are hundreds of pages of, of the American tax code specifically designed for this guy to depreciate everything he owns and write off everything he does in terms of that, which that's I right. think is a good thing. So fuck him, you know? <laughs> It it the, his metrics are wrong. You know, if you're sitting there going, I only have four hundred thousand dollars after I feed my family with two hundred thousand yeah. dollars, which consists of my wife, because yeah. my four kids are grown and gone. So, no, and I, and I don't begrudge anyone the money they earn. I really don't. Go get wealthy. That's great. The next point is just um, a change that the Ladders is doing. The Ladders, the group that specializes yeah. in hundred thousand dollar a year jobs, isn't going to specialize anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're they're going to help everybody, all career-minded professionals. So, really, really, yeah, good for them. I wanted to talk about the Revenge TV show, which I thought was about a girl who lost her family. All the oh, yeah. ads, it seemed like her, you know, someone had been murdered or something, and so she was going to go get revenge. And I found out today. I mean, it's not like I'm going to watch this show, but uh-huh. the Revenge TV show is about a girl getting back at the. Hamptons people who financially ruined her dad. Yeah, not exactly Les Miserables, is it? No, no. not quite. No. no, but it. And and for those of you out there who are who have a drink in your hand that are wondering why we haven't mentioned science fiction, it's not even the stars. My destination is it? No, drink up now. right. No, get that drink. Get that drink. And talking about how um, I wrote down on our notes. Those who never thought of themselves as poor are having to behave as if they are poor. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that last quarter, 200,000 people canceled their cable. 
Yeah. 200,000 people canceled cable in the United States in one quarter. Yeah. And that's economics. You know, a lot of it is, you know, yes, technology is changing. Yes, people are streaming movies, but people are also looking for places where they can cut. Yes. Everything out that is completely, you know, anything that's not not completely necessary. Well, and as as you know, Blue Gal, here at the castle, I have no cable, never have. Yeah. Yeah. It was an it was an expense after my divorce, and I get my TV through the air, or I get it from streaming online, or I come down to the you know the country house and see the it there. The country house has uh, three kids, and for now we have cable. But you have to, you have to <laughs> you have to. But yeah, no, I, I completely understand. It's a purely economic decision. Yeah, but I understand why people are are saying, oh my gosh, you know. How many times can you watch Nancy Grace dance? <laughs> it just makes no sense. Oh, people are noticing that commercial television is a fucking wasteland? Yeah. yeah. Well, or well, like John Stewart says, there's me and then there's 47 versions of the Style Network and that's it. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> Food that's shows, it. that's it. And then uh, tonight, we are recording this on Wednesday night when there has been a stay in the Troy Davis case. And someone tweeted. Oh, there has? Yeah, the, okay. the not a stay, but the uh, Supreme Court has delayed it, delayed okay. the execution so they can look at it. Mm-hmm. And whether they're going to decide to look at it, I I have no idea exactly where we are in the process of them deciding. That's where we are is right now the execution is not taking place because the Supreme Court's looking at it. And someone sent a message on Twitter saying capital punishment is when you have the capital, you don't get the punishment. Yep. And yep. I thought that was really well done. If you live in the South and you're black, your odds and, and you've killed a white person, you're, you killed you're a white person, killing a white person, especially. Yeah. At each one of those levels, your odds just go up astronomically. Yep. And you um, get no, no decent legal representation, which was the Troy Davis case. So as usual, yeah. Th- these are f- these are the people who, and I'm I, I'm sure I'm repeating something I've heard from five other sources, but you know, the Tea Party <laughs> are the people who believe the government is completely incompetent to do anything and can't be trusted to do anything except kill people, mm-hmm. tell women what to do with their vaginas, and go to war. In which case, the government's always right, and you should shut up about the the goodness and purity of the motives of the people who are pulling the trigger and all three of those things. Mm-hmm. You know, so shorter. Drift class, shut up, people. <laughs> shut up, you fucking hypocrites. <laughs> moving on. Moving on. And we're, and we're walking and <laughs> we're walking and we're moving forward. I also just wanted to bring up a couple of facts that have, I've come across in the past couple weeks about money. Uh, someone wrote in an article, and I, I'm sorry, I can't remember where it was, but there was a poll that showed the perception of how much people need to get by. Mm-hmm. And no matter what the income level was, it was always what I have plus 10%. Yeah, yeah. And so this guy who says, you know, I only bring home $400,000 a year. It's not enough to make ends meet. Let's face it. Sure. You know, is is being a very typical American. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this that- is something This is something that, that, that uh, Rod Serling wrote about. Mm-hmm. Um, in uh, like half of the shit he wrote, uh, especially I think there was a uh, teleplay he did called The Velvet Alley or something like that. But a lot of his teleplays were about himself, which were, was the man who goes to into advertising into Hollywood and, and makes at the time a fortune, the 100000 a year. 
and which was a fucking fortune. And then, of course, you need that. Suddenly you bought a house. Suddenly you have a pool. Suddenly you have a retinue. Suddenly you have an entourage and you have all these lifestyle choices you make that lock you into having to make that from now on. And now you really do start thinking about, you know, how do I keep making this fortune? Once you get locked into believing, uh, once you've made a lot of rich person's lifestyle choices mm-hmm. and locked yourself into, you know, a certain house and a certain kind of car, a certain kind of lifestyle. And as, um, oh, Charlie Chaplin said, I'm pulling this stuff out of thin air, so I'm kind of proud of myself for doing it. Um, the saddest thing he can imagine is getting used to luxury. Yeah. You know, once you've gotten used to, uh, like Rod Serling used to write in a lot of his plays, the protagonist is the guy who, who goes to Hollywood, makes out, makes a lot of money, and gets trapped into the, the golden treadmill. Mm-hmm. And once you're there, it's real easy when all you see around you are people at your income level to start justifying why you're really kind of hard put and you're yeah. really kind of down at the heels and you're, and, and it's, and, and you really shouldn't have to give away your income to those people. Well, and, the, but that's scale. the decision that we need to make in this country, which is what really is middle class? Is middle class this guy, the Tea Party congressman, who's got mm-hmm. six million dollar business and four hundred thousand dollars a year to, to blow? Yeah. Or is it affording yeah. cable, <laughs> you know, which is also outrageously right. expensive, you know, com- compared to what most of the world lives on? Well, it's, remember, remember when TV was free? Yeah. I mean, you know, and fairly, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't ever Shakespeare, but it wasn't a complete disaster. We saw you and I both saw uh, Monty Python for free. Yeah. Faulty Towers for free. You know, Black Adder for free. Yeah. Um, you know, roots for free. This was this was considered normal, and now paying for everything yep. is considered just well. Of course, well, we have everything to pay. has to make a profit. If you can't uh-huh. sell it, it's not worth anything. And that but, is sort of my final point, which is what you and I have been talking about all week about mm-hmm. being a liberal doesn't pay. <laughs> no. Well, and I, I want to add one thing about poverty, which is yeah. capitalism needs poor people. Yeah. Um, there's this wonderful scene that uh, has been recommended to me by everybody. And I'm sure I posted it at least once or twice. Uh, Tom Waits. Tom Waits in uh, The Fisher King, who's the homeless guy at Union Station, who's sitting there explaining, you know, I'm sort of a moral traffic light, you know. You know, you're coming home from your job and you're just ready to, you just, your job just sucks and, you, and you just, you're ready to stab your boss in the neck with a pair of scissors, you know. And you come by me, and you see me sitting there. And suddenly, it's like, I don't. My my job's not so bad. <laughs> Maybe I should, uh, you know, pucker up and kiss that man's ass. You know that the poor exist to terrify the middle class into keeping their fucking jobs and keeping their fucking mouths shut. And you know that's that's the useful you know purpose that they serve in in the great capitalist scheme of things. One of the reasons that conservative bloggers get ten thousand dollar prizes for what they do, uh-huh. and liberal bloggers don't, is that we don't sell our souls. Mm-hmm. And the final thing that I wanted to mention in, in lightning round is. Um, it occurred to me to go and find out whether my goal of 1% of our podcast listeners contributing to our podcast was a reasonable one. And we're getting close. I want to thank everyone who's given to the podcast in the past couple of weeks. 
you know, we went through a week where we had 3,000 listeners and nine contributors, and that was, to me, just kind of outrageous. And I mentioned it on a podcast, and it's that helped. That helped kind of wake people up to realize that, oh, you know, I really need to give five bucks. And that's really all that, you know, we're asking. And a lot of people are, many people are more generous than that. Um, mm-hmm. And we strongly but, but encourage the majority, that. The, the vast majority of our contributors are giving five or ten dollars. And this week we had 20. So, you know, it's it's up from nine. <laughs> and that's good. But I wanted to find out because I... I don't want to ask for more than anybody else expects and people generally get, you know, from their uh, direct mail campaigns or their whatever efforts they use to fundraise for a cause that they believe in. Uh I didn't want to be way out there with my 1% goal. And I found out that 1% is sort of reasonable, that direct mail gets between 0.5 and 2.5% response. Mm Mm-hmm. And so 1% is actually a reasonable goal. But in order to find that out, I had to wade (laughs) hip deep into the fundraiser entrepreneur business blog world. Uh And it was fascinating because some of these guys are really great, hardworking people. But but their attitude towards money is very different from mine. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, it's all about getting rich, and which is not my goal at all. And so... See, this is where you and I have... This is, yeah, you want to make your... You want to make a fortune. I've, that's, I've, I've been at this for, you know, so long and recognizing that the rewards that I get from this are not going to be monetary. I do not expect that. Well, I don't need to get rich, mm-hmm. but I need to feel financially... Um, secure. I need to have health care. I need to take care of my family. But you're not going to get that from blogging. Driftcoin. Well, that, there's the point. What I wanted to, do to get back to about this, these sure. business bloggers who promise you that you can make a million dollars as an <laughs> entrepreneur, you know, entrepreneur and bend the social media to your will, right? Um, yeah. One of them had an article, uh, a link that said, right and wrong ways to thank your contributors. And I thought, oh, that's interesting because I'm all about thanking my contributors. Right. So I clicked on it and it opened – the article opened with a sample letter that said, thank you so much for your contribution to Cause A. Uh, we know you'll agree that uh, no matter how much you give, more is needed Here's an opportunity for you to give more. Always be closing, baby. And the guy who wrote the article said, isn't this horrible that someone used a thank you note to fundraise more? Yeah. And poll after poll after poll shows that people hate that. They mm-hmm. think that's terrible. Just like that, my gut react. the article was saying, my gut reaction was, this is horrible. I would never tell a client to do this, et cetera, right. et cetera. But? Dot, dot, dot. And then uh-huh. he says, but it works. There's the there, and, yeah. <laughs> That's right. And I, I said, "Oh, it works. You get more money, but you're a dick." And so it gets to the point where life is not a shit sandwich. No. It's a dick sandwich. Well, let me and the just bigger say, dick you are, the more bread you get. You know. Let me just say, Blue Gal, this is a strategy that every I, I would venture to say every guy knows. Yeah. I'm not saying yeah. I'm not saying every guy deploys. Yeah. I'm yeah. saying every guy knows. Yeah. If 
you start off at one end of the bar and work your way mechanically mm. down the bar all night long. Uh-huh. You want to go home, have sex. You want to go to my place, have sex. Hey, have a drink. And, and you just work the bar or wherever you're at. Work the venue with the goal of getting laid tonight. You know what? You're going to get slapped and you're going to get looked at funny. And by the end of the night, you're going to get laid. Every guy out there knows that you can, in fact, get laid if you simply make it a mechanical process of elimination at the, starting at one end of the bar, whatever venue you're at, working your way down. Well, it's interesting because women have started to read books about that and marriage. Mm-hmm. Your goal this year is not to get married. Your goal is to meet 350 guys. Right. And if you meet 350 guys on the dating scene... You're going to meet somebody who wants to settle down and get married that's acceptable to you. So it's playing the numbers, like you say. It's that. Exactly. And and you can't argue. And my, uh, there's a buzzer that just went off. doesn't mean a thing to me, um, except to remind me that there's something I. You've got stuff in the dryer that's ready. i got stuff in the dryer. i got, I got Drift Class you know, superhero outfit in the dryer. Well, as you can tell, we're, we're not at 30 Rock. We haven't taken our limos to 30 Rock to record the no. show. There, There is a certain amount of merit to... Let me put it this way. Let me back up. If you strictly go after your customer base, your client base, your listener base, or whatever it is you're going to do, with the single-minded, you know, fanatical intent of making money or getting laid or whatever it is, you will succeed, yeah. or you will have a very good chance of succeeding because if you just keep being a jerk and asking and asking and asking and asking, eventually someone will tumble, something will tumble, something will happen. Between that strictly entrepreneurial, I don't give a shit what I'm selling as long as I walk away with, you know, a half a million dollars at the end of the year, I'll sell anything mm-hmm. mentality. Yeah. And the, I actually care about what I'm doing. I actually try to create uh, a, a worthwhile product, service, message, podcast, whatever. At the end of the day, all that time is useful in terms of, of, of giving people vocabulary and helping people I think, explicate their situation mm-hmm. and really helping people understand they're not alone. Yeah, and Drift Class, as an aside, you and I have taken writing classes and th- sat through writing creative writing seminars, mm-hmm. you know, over the course of several decades. <laughs> yes, we have. And do, you, we've, do you remember? Dare I say we have conducted some. We yes, have taught some writing have. classes yeah. and seminars, yeah. just so we're clear. This, we, we've been to the rodeo a few times. Yeah, just a few times. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the time, and you don't have to give me a date, but remember the time when John Gresham got successful and all of a sudden all these community college and adult education programs were filled with lawyers? Oh, yes. For like three years? Oh, yes, I do. Oh, God, yes, I do. How do you make me into John Gershom? Right. I'm going to write about lawyering and it's going to make me rich. And you know what? And I can't remember a single story. There's, from any of them. And you know what? That, that's a really excellent analogy because yeah. around the same time, Scott Turow yes. was taking the L, the same, well, the, taking the same train I used to take and typing his stories out. And they were thoughtful, mm-hmm. well-crafted pieces of fiction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of them, the story goes – and I, I don't mean to leap around, but I really – this is actually going to come to a point – um, Stephen King did marketing research uh, before he started writing and discovered, you know, you can make a lot of money writing. You can make a certain amount of money writing porn and just 
got really good, just took 200 porn novels home, read them all, figured out the formula for creating a successful dirty book Mm -hmm. and cranked them out. And then went on to the next genre. Here's how you create a successful, you know, enterprise within horror. Mm -hmm. And along the way, I will say that Stephen King became a very good writer. Yeah. Um, He's too prolific for, for people to sort of appreciate the elegance of some of his fiction and some of it's just schlock. But, you know, when people look back at the 20th century, they're going to look at Stephen King the same way they look back at in some of Charles Dickens. He, yeah, he captured he a certain it out. Yeah. He captured a certain slice of American life better than almost anybody else. Well, and I love reading Stephen King about writing. Yeah. When absolutely. you read him about writing, he's mm-hmm. on the top of his game. He is. And he yeah. knows his shit. He really does yeah. know his shit. Yeah. But, you know, but he he took a, a very business-like entrepreneurial approach to the, the the craft of writing, and let me tell you, I, I was in those classes. I was <laughs> I, I, along the way. I helped teach some of those classes, and what I saw tragically, um, or, or sadly, it wasn't a tragedy really, was I saw a lot of writers I respected a lot running the other direction. Yeah, saying, you know what, writing ain't fun anymore. You can't make yeah. a living at it. The mid lists are gone. Um, if you're not Stephen King, if you're not um, John Grisham, you cannot make a living at this. Um, so fuck it. Unless you have a, a patron or a rich spouse or tenure, you're fucked. You can't make a living at this. Just about the same time I was trying to make a living at it, every writer I knew who was sort of in the business left. Mm-hmm. Um, said, "Now nah, fuck it. There's, you know, this is this is no longer any fun, and I don't feel like I'm contributing to society." It turned into nothing but a business, and that was that was sad. But that brings us sort of full circle to back to sort of liberal activism. There is a practical keeping the roof over your head side to it, and there is the I really believe in this cause, and therefore I'm going to commit myself to it side to it. I keep trying to find a place in between those two where it is possible for me to commit myself to a cause I deeply believe in and not go broke in six weeks, yep. not go completely flat-ass bust yep. and say, you know what? I've spent my energy, I've spent my time, I've spent my, my, my effort, and I have nothing to show for it. At the end of the day, I have, um, I have a lot of pretty words on page, I have a lot of podcasts I, I adore, but I can't keep a roof over my family's head. So I, I am, in a sense, failing at what I'm trying to – my primary mission, which is you know, <laughs> keeping is, body and soul. Yeah, and you've got to have a day job to do this. Yeah. I mean, And that's true yeah. of all artists I mean, and writers, a lot of them. You look at you look at people that worked for the post office or worked for you know great writers that throughout history had day jobs. So that's not oh no surprising. It's, what what's different is that that and this is where we're sort of wandering far afield. But the day job used to really be a day job. Yeah, it used to be you know eight to three, you know nine to four, nine to five, and you could go home. I mean you know I I am old enough to remember that. You know, people showed up to work at at, at X, left at Y, and had outside lives, and had mm-hmm. outside interests. Mm-hmm. But the 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 Davos capitalist system in which we live has ex- it, plus technology, which follow, now follows you everywhere, has taken the workspace and the work day and expanded it to twenty four seven. You can't get away from your job. You can if you want. And this is uh, I was talking to a friend of mine. Believe it or not, I, I saw an old friend of mine on the on the train today and asked my old friend how uh, how it was working for the Emanuel administration. Yeah. This is a person who works for the city of Chicago, 
And he just shrugged and said, you know, a bunch of 20-somethings and 30-somethings are imported from BC, from Harvard. And the work ethic is now, if you don't put in 60 hours a week, you're fired. Mm-hmm. And fuck you. Deadlines don't move. Deadlines don't budge. I don't want to hear about your family. You know, and, and it, it sounds a lot like Alec Baldwin's speech from Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. Nice guy. Love your family. Fuck you. Go home. Play with your kids. There's, there's an absolute contempt for people who have who are not 100% committed to their career yeah. in the workplace. And therefore, that, that slack time people used to have between the job and whatever else they do with their life is gone. That's been, that's been soaked up. That you, you want to know where increased productivity came from, the, all that productivity increase we've seen for the last 30 years? All that people came out People working 70-hour weeks. Absolutely. So all of that extra time, all that slack time, all that, that crowdsourcing extra stuff we used to have, all that um, cognitive surplus, I think it's called, um, is gone. Yeah. It's been sucked up into the workplace to make the Koch brothers richer. Yeah. So um, if we had a place where you could work a job, come home, and detach yourself from your job long enough to pursue an avocation or a second career or a hobby or a family or all of the above, that would be one thing. But that society stopped existing during the 90s, and that's what bothers me is that it's now it's, it's, it's becoming more, more an either-or proposition. Anyway, I'm off my soapbox now. Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, it's a big ass soapbox, blue gal. Big enough for the whole world. Yeah. Well, and and I also just wanted to add that a lot of people talk in Alabama when I where I used to live about tithing, and virtually mm-hmm. no one tithes. Mm-hmm. So you know this idea. When it's giving to God and you can't afford not to tithe and, you know, on and on and on. And people claim to be putting God first and so forth and so on uh, when it comes to their cable bill. Are going to pick that, you know. Do they take 10% off their cable bill? Yeah, right. And Wouldn't that be Jesus? nice? Give it to Jesus. Yeah. All right, we have some letters to read. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If people would like to write to us, we are at P.O. Box 9133. Springfield, Illinois, 62791. We got some snail mail this week, and then we have have one email I also want to read. Um, The first one's very uh, funny. Hey, guys, wanted you to know a couple of things. One, you're both really annoying. We know that. Each in your own way. Yes. Two, that's very much what we need, so don't stop. All right, that is Mike, and thank you very much, Mike, for letting us know that. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. And where's Mike from? Do we know? Uh, he is from eviltimes.blogspot.com. He's a blogger, oh. E-V-I-L-L-E, times.blogspot.com. So Thanks, there, he Mike. got a plug. There you go. <laughs> there you go. And First no- one's free, Mike. <laughs> First one's free. <laughs> Speaking of money. The second one was written on September 11th. Uh Dear Drift Glass and Blue Gal, just found you guys a couple of months ago. I'm sitting here listening to episode 92. I've been trying to explain to myself how I've been feeling. When I heard you guys, it just hit home for me. Keep up the good work. Maybe two podcasts a week. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sure. Sincerely. And that is uh, Johnny. And Johnny says, P.S., Lewis, he's from North Carolina. P.S. Lewis Black went to college in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. We are not South Carolina. 
<laughs> yeah, you keep saying that, but and, you know, it's true. <laughs> no, I, I get it. I'm oh, sorry. Oh, very fa- well. And you know, I took a his- I took a couple of history classes with um, David Hackett Fisher, who's a famous American historian at Brandeis, and what he did was social history, which is sort of charts and graphs and looking at statistics for different parts of the country. And he would talk about, you know, and this happened and this happened, and guess which was the last state to adopt such and such an (laughs) issue of progress? And it was always South Carolina. Every single time it got to the point where he would just say, and the last state to do it was, and the whole class would get out, South Carolina. Okay, we get it. Um, Finally, Griff Glass, why don't you read this letter? I'd be happy to, uh, Miguel. Because you have this in front of me. Um, <coughs> read, read the letter from David in New Mexico, would you please? <laughs> David in New Mexico writes, Please, if you can, mention the Wall Street protest on this week's podcast. The media silence is appalling. Can you imagine the reportage of 300 Tea Partiers camped out in the park near the Fed and Stock Exchange? Instead, the protest in New York is ignored, just as the environmentalist protest in the White House in, at the White House is ignored. So much for the liberal press. Well, you know, and, David and, the war, and the war, anti-war protests yeah. as well. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, they just turn the cameras away. They don't yeah. want to see it. And you know, that's um, that is a tactical problem. It, we are not protesting the wrong things. We are simply um, not yet able to insist on ourselves, insist that attention be paid, um, and. But you know, we were talking earlier about Vietnam, and I think we are turning the tide with the silent majority yeah. in that they're starting to get it that when we talk about tax reform, we're not talking about class warfare. We're talking no. about fair share, and there's yep. a difference. There's a huge difference, and I do think the tide is turning in that regard. It's interesting. I was listening to Chris Hedge's book, uh, which is called The Death of the Liberal Class. Uh-huh. It's hard to listen to because he's a real revolutionary. <laughs> and But he opens his book talking about a guy who was, is a veteran, a young veteran who's out of a job, who went to tea party groups and carries around a book by Ron Paul in his backpack. And listening to this book on audio where he's talking about how we liberals have failed this guy because if we had a populist message, you know, we could have gathered up the Tea Partiers and channeled their anger against Wall Street and so forth. But Fox News had the media (laughs) to to grab them, you know. Mm -hmm. But if you want to talk about grabbing discontent and channeling it appropriately, you know, there is a way to do that. But here's the the issue, I was listening to this on audiobook, and it was almost impossible for me to distinguish between what Chris Hedges was saying and what this teabagger was saying. Mm-hmm. Because basically they were both saying, burn the motherfucker down. Yep. And, yep. you know, again, I'm, I'm going to say it again. My mission in this podcast is keep hope alive. Yep. The tide is turning, and it's slow. Mm-hmm. Progress is slow, and it is Three steps forward, two back. You know, we're, we're going through another... We went through the Gilded Age, and we're going through the Depression now. Yeah. And things change as a result of that. I, I see a lot happening. You know, Elizabeth Warren talked about class warfare being a myth. Mm-hmm. You know, she makes a really good case. There's nobody in this case that this was... I think you said you were reading Joan Walsh, but I think she was quoting uh-huh. Elizabeth Warren. Because Elizabeth Warren said, 
There's nobody in this country that got rich on his own. Nobody. You can yes. build a factory out there. Good for you. But I want to be clear. You moved your goods to market on the roads the rest of us paid for. You hired workers the rest of us paid to educate. You mm-hmm. were safe in your factory because of police forces and fire forces that the rest of us paid for. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to worry that marooting bands would come and seize everything at your factory and hire someone to protect against this because of the work the rest of us did. You built a factory and turned it into something terrific or a great idea. God bless. Keep a big hunk of it. But the part of the underlying social contract is you take a hunk of that and pay forward to the next kid that comes along. So that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And she's absolutely right. And I don't see how any, but that's a populist message and it's what we have to keep pushing. You know, there's a lot of, you know, fetishization of messaging, on yeah. the left, you know, let's 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 frame and let's let's you know let's That's, move the yeah. window, the Overton window. No, no, just talk like Elizabeth Warren. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just I my mean, God, she she explains. Talk like her. Talk like Paul Wellstone. Yeah. <clears throat> well, and I saw a bumper sticker today that was you know Ron Paul 2012, and then underneath it said "More freedom, no government." That was it. More freedom, no government. That's what it said. Yeah. Yeah. And. It was on a big-ass truck, and I thought, you know, I was really kind of sorry that the guy from the truck didn't come out, and I said, you really don't believe that, because if somebody breaks into this beautiful truck you've got, you're going to want government to be there to arrest the guy, you know? Right. Or to try so, him. Yeah, or to put him on yeah. trial, or to, or to sue him. Yeah. If somebody crashes into your truck, you're going to want insurance regulations to be there to say, yeah, that guy had to have car insurance. The guy who crashed into you in the parking lot. And if you'd you like know. to drive your truck any place but your driveway, yeah. you're going to want roads that are passable. Stoplights. You're going to want stoplights. <clears throat> so you don't want no government. That's bullshit. But, you know, it, there's it, no it's, one around, there's it's no one small around penis. That. It's small penis syndrome is what it is. I'm telling yeah. you. Libertarianism. Yeah. Small penis syndrome. The end. We want to <laughs> – <laughs> on that note, we want to thank our <laughs> listeners. You see, always this uh, again. Everyone knows you. You always go out on a dick joke. So. <laughs> well, that's the rule, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, oh! I wanted to talk about one other thing. I wanted no, to talk about death no, penalty. You, you on the, the death T-bomb. penalty. Wait, on the death penalty. We have to talk about this for just a sec. All right. I caught a few minutes of the Charlie Sheen roast on Comedy Central. And it reminded me so much of the Republican debates. I can't tell you. In the fetishization of death and the sense that this isn't real, this is something that happens to other people. Poverty and death are something that happened to other people. The guy who does South Park, um, who hosted it, actually, uh, Chris McFarland. Yeah, Seth. Seth McFarland. He hosted Uh this whole thing. I was really stunned at his opening because he said, you know, we none of us really thought that we'd make it to the day where you'd make it to the show. <laughs> and you'd survive to live this long to be on this show, Charlie Sheen. But, you know, in fact, I was so sure that you wouldn't that I actually wrote your obituary. And he opens up this piece of paper and you're like, holy shit, he's going to read Charlie Sheen's obituary at a comedy mm-hmm. show. Uh-huh. And he starts to read just one or two sentences. He said, ah, oh, never mind. I just copied Amy Winehouse's and took off the part about they will be missed. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> that's, I'm laughing, but really it was harsh. Yeah. It was, I'm laughing because I'm embarrassed. It was harsh. 
Oh, this this is I read some deconstruction about that very thing, which mm-hmm. was, you know, the friar's roast used to be a genteel ribbing. Yeah. Uh, among professionals who couldn't sort of let it all hang out in front of the camera. Now it is, um, let's put a camera on the worst train wreck in society yep. and mock them as they go, you know, crashing and burning off, off the cliff. Yep. It is, it is pure Roman, you know, arena spectacle mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, uh, utterly unfunny. No, it's, I, exactly. I turned it off after that. I was just like, oh my God, this is just yeah. embarrassing. This isn't comedy. This is embarrassing. But it reminded me so much of people applauding the death penalty and people applauding, you know, let them die. You know, the, the Roman – talk about the fall of the Roman Empire for crying out loud. <laughs> these are, these are the, the mobs with their thumbs down. You know, yeah, Charlie Sheen, we're just going to write your obituary. Oh, you know, and it's- now we have – we may be putting – Possibly innocent man to death tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, hey, hey, Dow's up. Yeah. <laughs> so, and we got know. we got our two guys back from Iran. So so fuck it. It's you know, all fuck it all them. America, out. USA. Yeah, yeah. yeah all yeah. right, all right. Hey, we love you guys, you listeners, and thank you so much for listening and contributing to our podcast. We have a website, professionalleft.blogspot.com, that has all the info you need to write us, to contribute to our podcast, and to listen to us for free with no download and no registration. We're on Facebook. If you like us on Facebook, we'd love that. We got our 400th like on Facebook this week. That is awesome. Thank you. And I am Francis Langham, L-A-N is in Nancy, G-U-M, like chewing gum on Facebook. If you friend me, I will friend you back. We're on iTunes. We love our iTunes listeners. It's really time for those of you who listen on iTunes. If you would, wouldn't mind, go to the iTunes store, look up our podcast, and scroll down to the bottom. See if you can't rate and review our podcast. We would appreciate that. That gets our podcast recommended to other people and uh, gives us gives us a little higher ranking on iTunes, which helps us find more listeners. So we appreciate that. A special shout-out to our Crooks and Liars listeners. We're on Crooks and Liars Saturday night at Open Thread. We are also, from what I understand, on Netroots Nation Radio at netrootsradio.blogspot.com on Sunday nights. And thank you to those listeners, too. Mm-hmm. You can contribute to our podcast. If you give us $15 or more, we will snail mail you a spiffy Professional Left Podcast notepad. We thank everyone personally who contributes to the podcast by email. So uh, we want you to know how much we appreciate you. We have an email address, proleftpodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to write us. Be aware that if you write us at that address, we reserve the right. And if you write us at our snail mail address, we reserve the right to read your mail or email on the air. Unless you otherwise specify. Unless you otherwise tell us, please don't. So, Blue Gal, how are the Internet Kitties doing this week? The Internet Kitties are so in it to win it, they just hired Ed Rollins. Let's think about living. Let's think about loving. Let's think about the hooping and the hopping and the bopping and the loving, loving, dubbing. Let's forget about the whining and the crying, the shooting and the dying, and the fellow with the switchblade knife. Let's think about living. Let's think about life. This podcast is recorded under a Creative Commons license. Copyright 2011, Drift Glass Blue Gal Podcast.